Welcome to this podcast on COVID-19 and education, jointly produced by Queen's University Belfast and Pivotal Public Policy Forum. The podcast is one of a series in which we'll be tapping into the expertise of researchers at Queen's and in the Pivotal Network to set out the ways in which evidence-based ideas and policies can help improve our society, economy and public services. I'm Richard English, Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Internationalisation and Engagement at Queen's, and it's a pleasure now to hand over to Anne Watt, Director of Pivotal, to introduce the panel and to chair the discussion. My thanks to Professor Richard English for introducing this podcast on education during COVID-19. Welcome to our listeners. We hope you find this discussion interesting and engaging. I'm pleased to be hosting this discussion today, brought to you by Queen's University Belfast, Ulster University and Pivotal. This is the third podcast in our public policy series about the impact of COVID-19 in Northern Ireland. I'm very pleased to have with me today Professor Tony Gallagher, Professor of Education at Queen's, Professor Siobhan O'Neill, Professor of Mental Health at Ulster University and recently appointed as Interim Mental Health Champion for Northern Ireland and Dr. Brona McKee, Senior Lecturer and Child Protection and Safeguarding Coordinator at Stranmillis University College. And my name is Anne Watt. I'm the Director of Pivotal, the new independent public policy think tank for Northern Ireland. Pivotal aims to help improve public policy in Northern Ireland by increasing the use of research and evidence and by involving more people in public policy discussions. Although an independent think tank, Pivotal benefits from academic partnerships with Queen's University and Ulster University. And one aspect of this is being involved in discussions with academics like this podcast today about current public policy issues. So COVID-19 has transformed our lives over recent months, and one of the most obvious ways has been through school closures. For children, this has meant weeks and months without the routine of school, without the interactions with classmates and teachers and without learning guided by teachers face to face in the familiar school environment. In its place has been learning at home, which has taken a range of different forms. For teachers, this has been a really challenging period requiring extremely quick planning and delivery of learning in a completely different format. And for parents, it's meant supporting learning at home as best they can in many cases while juggling work and family responsibilities. The impact of all this has been immense. We've heard a lot about the burden on teachers and parents of these completely unusual arrangements, but perhaps less so, so, less so far about the impact on children and young people of the months of missing school in terms of well-being, learning and development. What do we know about how schools in Northern Ireland have handled lockdown? What's been the impact of this period of school closures on children and young people? This is not just about lost learning, but maybe more importantly about, about impacts on well-being, which of course underpin, underpins learning. As schools and children prepare to return to school in September, what needs to happen to support them? Do we have policies in place that will help children and young people who have struggled during lockdown? And if not, what else needs to happen? So turning to our panel, I'm going to start first with Professor Tony Gallagher. Tony, what do we know about how schools in Northern Ireland have approached lockdown? 
Well, I suppose if we think back to uh, to March, which seems an awful long time ago now, um, there was a lot of confusion at the start about what should happen. Um, schools weren't entirely clear whether they should lock down. There wasn't a clear message coming from the Department of Education initially. Uh, the confusion was probably added because in the Republic uh, of Ireland, <clears throat> they locked down a bit earlier. Um, so what happened in practice was that schools de facto locked down themselves. Uh, the uh, t- uh, Pupils were, were either kept at home or, or told, their parents were told to keep them at home. And teachers initially tried to prepare for uh, teaching on an online environment. There was a, a massive transformation uh, within a matter of days to try and get as much material online as possible. There was also um, a recognition in many schools that uh, many young people wouldn't be able to access uh, uh, online uh, systems and so they started trying to prepare for that as well preparing uh, written materials and uh, pickup arrangements and this sort of thing. Uh, so for the first few weeks there was this um, period of confusion as they tried to, to put things in place for the new uh, the new, new situation. There was a bit of confusion over what was going to happen with the examination students and the exams, whether the exams could be taken remotely or whether would they be cancelled or what would happen and in the event as we know they were, uh, were cancelled uh, and different systems put in, put in place. Um, things then settled down uh, for a while uh, and people started to collect anecdotal and survey evidence on what was happening within schools. Um, and broadly the pattern that has emerged is quite a mixed one. Uh, it's clear that some young people have thrived in the the, um, uh, the opportunities being provided uh, for some independent learning. Some teachers have thrived uh, in moving to online and remote teaching. But it looks like quite a, high, a reasonably high proportion of young people have become largely disengaged uh, from, from learning. Um, there was a, a, an early appreciation on the part of many parents, I think, on the... Um, the work the teachers did whenever they tried to do homeschooling uh, and for a while the stock of teachers rose absolutely immensely. Um, as we move toward a situation uh, more recently where there's been a lot of conversation on schools reopening, some people and some politicians have been a bit more critical of schools um, and uh, so the, the, the arc of the conversation has changed a little bit which I think is, is unfortunate. Um, but that has been the pattern so far, sort of a settled period whenever people were trying to do the best they could in difficult circumstances, but with a very a very variable pattern of, of engagement and uh, support for, for young people. Uh, now to a situation where lots of the discussion is about the circumstances under which schools should be reopening and what should ha- when they should be open and, uh, and the, the form that should take. So looking at what's happened internationally, obviously COVID has been a global event. Um, and schools have shut across the world. So what different approaches have been used elsewhere? A lot of places we're dealing with exactly the same situation. And we we talk a lot about homeschooling. In fact, it's probably more accurate to talk about, for most countries, uh, we were dealing with emergency education um, uh, rather than this full-blown sort of homeschooling. there are, I suppose there are two interesting contrasts internationally. One is uh, a very small number of countries, Sweden's probably the best known in Europe, that decided not to, sc- to close schools at all and to keep schools going. Um, uh, that, so that was, that was one, one approach that was taken. Most places did decide to, uh, to, to close schools uh, in terms of face-to-face teaching. The other contrast was a small number of Asian countries that have been turned out to be the best prepared to deal with the virus, but also have turned out to be the best prepared to deal with uh, the educational lockdown. Uh, 
partly because they had experienced SARS and MERS, um, they had put, largely put in place uh, online systems and trained teachers in online provision so that as soon as the crisis kicked in, they were able to switch all their teaching onto an online environment with single portals and uh, and well-established systems to do that. Teachers were very, very well trained to, to switch to this form of teaching from a fairly early stage and so they were able to do that quite easily. Uh, and where there were situations where teachers or students didn't have access to computers or other uh, devices that could uh, access on, they were able to deal with that problem very, very quickly. So there is a, an, an, a, 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 this example in education where those countries that were best prepared to deal with the virus turns out turned out largely to have been best prepared to deal with the, the new educational world. And when we look at the evidence in the longer run it's the chances are they're going to show the least evidence of educational impact at least that would be, be my expectation okay so emerging research seems to suggest that experience of home learning during lockdown have been very varied so different children young people have experienced it in very different ways as tony's already said um, it seems that children who are from better off backgrounds perhaps with parents with a higher education level and um, access to IT um, may be doing better so that there's a risk then of this period of school closures increasing the educational attainment gap, which is already a problem in Northern Ireland. Um, what evidence do we have so far, Think turning now to Brona and Siobhan, um, what evidence do we have about the impact of lockdown on children's well-being and on their learning? Brona, can we start with you on that? Yeah, um, uh, well, when you think about the children's learning and the impact on their learning, I think it goes hand in hand, as you mentioned earlier, um, about the connection with well-being. Uh, my concern uh, from a safeguarding point of view is the increased number of tagline calls, the increased number of calls to the PSNI relating to domestic violence. Um, those would be the adverse childhood experiences that would concern me because of the neuroscience and the impact on brain development and of course how that then links to relationships, to behaviour, to learning. Um, we know that there was a there's quite a large number of children already experiencing not only adverse childhood experiences within the home but also adverse community environments. Um, which Tony has referred to already and yourself. So I, I believe there's no doubt there's going to be a massive impact on learning. We don't know yet. We don't, I don't believe we have enough research um, available to us as yet, but I do think the emerging um, conversations that we're having with teachers, with schools, with um, uh, working groups, with social workers, with uh, different agencies and organisations they're certainly suggesting that there is going to be an awful impact on learning um, as well as mental health and well-being. Okay, great. Thank you, Bruno. Um, Siobhan, from your point of view, what what evidence do you think there is of, of the impact of lockdown on children's well-being at the minute? Well, I, I mean, there's there's surveys have shown that both adults and young people and children um, encountered this pandemic and it was a huge stressor. It was it was a stressor for all of us and for um, a number of young people, they will already have had mental health problems going into this and it can certainly uh, usually make, make those worse for, for young people. Um, having said all of that, though all the evidence seems to suggest that after we kind of got used to lockdown and we, we adjusted that, 
most people were fine. And we've got to remember, of course, that young people are very resilient. Neuroplasticity is at its peak at, you know, in those age groups. So so for the most part, our young people will be well and will adapt and adjust. However, there are those subpopulations that were experiencing abuse and neglect through not through lockdown and who who for him isolation loneliness not seeing their their friends not having play opportunities not having enough physical exercise not having access to the equipment and the infrastructure that the digital divide all of those things mean that the inequalities that were already there and the mental health problems that were, were already there will be made worse and it's more difficult to provide treatments in that context so the schools have a really difficult job now not only managing the trans back to education restart but also trying to identify which of those young people are most affected um, by this and provide them then with supports and sometimes even treatments for, for mental health problems at a timely stage um, and these are teachers who will be concerned for their own well-being um, and the risk that they might get the virus um, and there's always the possibility of second and indeed third waves of this so te- teachers need to feel safe and social in order to teach and young people need to feel safe and it's just impossible to learn when you're under stress and pressure so we've got to bear all of that in mind as we move forward. Yeah so thinking about going back to school which we'll talk about a bit later in in our discussion there's going to be a huge amount of pressure on teachers dealing with the social distancing dealing with all the hand hygiene rules that they've got in place but then you know as well as all that practical stuff there's then thinking about the the well-being of the children looking at each child um, getting to know where where that where they're at and how the previous months have been for them and that's even before you're starting about thinking of thinking about learning um just with the benefit of hindsight what do you think could have been done differently to reduce the negative impacts of lockdown on children this and this might be really relevant if we do go into another lockdown which is always a possibility what what do you think tony starting with you what do you think could have been done differently um, I suppose there's a couple of things strike me. One is the uh, I think there could have been more support for teachers prior to this in terms of training them in the use of online systems, uh, because we we have snow days, we have days whenever schools are closed in the past. Uh, one of the advantages of working remotely is that those things need not matter anymore, uh, and we could make much better use of online systems. We we are lucky on one level. We have a C2K system. We have a system across the entire schools uh, system for computers, which is which is very very good. But we maybe could have made more of that. I think um, there should have been more attention at the start to a point that's already been made about the socio-emotional impact of all of this. Uh, we know evidence from other emergency situations in other countries that there is a socio-emotional impact on children and on teachers uh, and it's the impact on teachers that seems often to be forgotten in these situations so there's, there's issues uh, issues there that, that, that we need to, to think about. Um, I think um, the other main point that strikes me is uh, uh, the the advice that's that's coming at any particular point in time tends to be quite mixed and tends to change quite quickly, uh, and that's in, in some sense the nature of the of the crisis we're dealing with. Very often, the impression I've got is that the the system has been preparing for one outcome, when in fact a number of different possible outcomes were 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 possible. So we should we should always be preparing for options rather than a single outcome and trying to cover ourselves so that no matter what happens, we're able to to move uh, with agility to try and deal with that. That for me is maybe one of the the most important things that's come out of this. And um, what would you say, Siobhan, on that about what could have been done differently? 
Um, I think there should have been a more coordinated, concerted effort to make sure that young people had access to the um, the, the technology, to laptops and equipment. I mean, I mean, six weeks into this, we were hearing about children who were accessing resources and mobile phones and indeed tablets and that. And like I, I know I have laptops sitting that I, that I could have had repurposed for for this. So there, there's a lot that could have been coordinated better. Um, there, there's almost too much out there in terms of online resources to support mental health. And when you Google this, parents will be swamped. So I think we, we should coordinate the resources that are there right now so that we have a, a list there, a website with good quality resources that, that teachers and parents know that they can trust and we can provide consistent advice for parents on things like how to manage an anxious child going through this period. Those sort of key questions, it, it took a long time for the guidance to come out and for parents to get the message there. Um, and I also think, see, if clear messages of about what's required in terms of social distancing, in terms of mask wearing um, and, and hand washing and things like that have, have all been really, really important. So we need to um, really consolidate the trust that we have in the scientific advisors and, and follow that advice and, and get those public health messages out there clearly through the media outlets. Okay, so, so far, I think we're hearing about a very challenging and confusing early period when schools were in the process of closing and children were being uh, kept at home and home learning began. But that then settled down for probably most children and young people. It wasn't ideal, but it was manageable. But but for some, we've talked about the concerns about some young people who were in risky situations at home because of abuse or neglect or feelings of, of isolation and perhaps that's exacerbating mental health problems for them. Um, we've also talked about the, the, the advice and support that's been available from the Department of Education and how I think if we were heading into another lockdown, we'd be looking for uh, advice that was more settled and clearer and perhaps was flexible to deal with different scenarios as they emerged, given the, the, the situation moving so quickly. And also Siobhan's point there at the end about how there needs to be better coordination of resources so that the, so that young people, children and parents indeed aren't overwhelmed by the amount of resources and actually are directed to, towards the resources that will be of most help to them. So moving on to think about children returning to school in September. So the Department of Education is committed to all children being back in school from September, although not necessarily full time. What plans are schools putting in place to bring this about. Tony, can you help us with that, please? Yeah, well, the sense I get from the department is that they're very keen that as many uh, young people are back in school for as much time as possible. Uh, obviously, it's not going to be normal, but they would quite like it to, to get back to as close to normal as, as possible. Um, part of the difficulty that schools are facing, I think, is, is a bit like the situation at the very start. They're not entirely clear uh, uh, what the rules are going to be at that that point. So what are the, the social distance rules going to be? Is it going to be two metres, one metre, or are the, are the schools going to be allowed to use bubbles where young people, uh, basically the distance rules don't apply? There's a bit of confusion as to whether a bubble is a small group of about 12 to 15 kids, a class or a year group, because it seems to me this is quite for big differences, uh, differences there. Um, the uh, uh, if, if there's any type of distancing rules going to be applied, then schools are going to need to use a lot more space. Uh, some of them will have that space. They'll be able to use gym halls, uh, other halls that 
dining rooms and this sort of thing, uh, uh, dining halls. Uh, but not all schools will have that space. So there's going to be an issue there about whether all schools are going to be in a position to actually teach all of the young people uh, every day. And I know there are some schools, in fact, maybe quite a, uh, quite a lot of schools, that at this point are working on the assumption that p- uh, pupils will be back for a couple of days a week, but not every day. And they're going to have to try and work out some way of dealing with, uh, with, with that. That means that there will be a conti- there'll continue to be s- s- quite significant use of remote learning and online systems. Uh, and I think uh, teachers should be being uh, geared up to, to uh, deal with that. Some teachers clearly are, have been very, very good with it. Uh, some other teachers are maybe not so familiar with it. We should be putting training in place to ensure that the, uh, any remote learning is of the highest qu- uh, uh, possible quality. I do get the impression that part of the thinking from the department at the moment is on the assumption that by the time we get to late August, September, that things will have eased off a bit more. Um, uh, And so it will be easier to put in place some of the things that they would like to see come in place. Things that are happening in other countries, uh, even in the Republic of Ireland at the moment, suggest we maybe ought to be a bit more cautious about that because in the Republic we see the R value rising. Uh, we see in some countries the uh, the beginnings of a, a sort of an enduring effect of the virus or even some evidence of second waves. So we need to think about what might happen if there is a, 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 a big hit uh, in the autumn. Uh, we're going to see the going into the flu period, so there's going to be lots of kids with coughs and sniffles. How will we know whether those are symptoms of COVID ID or flu? Uh, you know, what are the rules going to apply there? Just yesterday in Scotland, the um, scientific advice to the Scottish government was that teachers should wear masks in schools. Uh, if they can't maintain uh, two metre distances or they're going to be interacting with kids for more than 15 minutes. At this point, we're not saying anything, uh, as, as far as I'm aware, for schools in Northern Ireland. So again, this is a situation where um, uh, I think we have to assume that there are a number of different possibilities that could emerge uh, and the advice that should be going out should be trying to cover all those different possibilities. Uh, the point has been made already that about trust. Trust is absolutely essential in this situation. Trust of the authorities uh, in order to get people to comply with difficult decisions. And one of the things that's important about trust is whenever we don't know uh, 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 the the actual situ- uh, situation and under some circumstances we don't know the evidence we should be clear about that that there's certain decisions we can't give advice on at this point, this point because we simply do not know but we are trying to collect more evidence to try and understand it understand it better the advice has kept changing as new more and more evidence more and more analysis has been carried out we should acknowledge that that's the situation and so with, there are points further down the line when advice that is given out now will have to change um, and so all of that has to be that sort of sense of agility, openness about what we know and what we don't know, and trying to prepare for a range of different scenarios. I think that has to be the the way we approach this this uh, this next period. So it's a hugely uncertain time. And Tony, there you're making the case for the the advice and guidance from from the department to be flexible to to reflect that. Um, turning to Brona and Siobhan, what will be the priorities for schools as children come back in ret- in September? There's there's going to be a huge amount of uh, pressure on teachers to deal with the different situation of the social distancing and the hygiene and all of that stuff. Um, but what do you think the the main priorities should be as children return, starting with Brona? Um, 
I think teachers have done a fantastic job. Um, first and foremost, I think it needs to be acknowledged and they need to be reminded at, at such a good job that they have done during this pandemic. Um, as Siobhan said earlier, it has been very stressful for, for us as adults as well as children. Um, I think they would need um, additional support in keeping the priority of providing a safe supportive structure. And if that safe supportive structure is provided um, from the get-go, um, I think they will be able to move forward regardless of which outcome they have to follow in September. The safety aspect, um, it's emotional safety as well as physical safety and I think there needs to be a good emphasis on social safety as well. Um, children need to be supported in keeping the, the good hand hygiene up, the um, appropriate uh, distancing measures but keeping up the social connections at the same time. Um, they shouldn't be um, reprimanded if they get that wrong. They should be supported um, and uh, and encouraged to keep up those those good safety skills. Um, the supportive environment, I think, for me and for many teachers is that it's about relationships. It's about human connections. It's about giving children time to reconnect with their friends, with their peers, um, you know, through their play. You can't just stop learning through play. It just does not happen, especially in the early years and especially with primary school. Um, the supportive environment needs to be trauma responsive. Um, teachers are very good. There's a lot of training available. The Safeguarding Board NI provide trauma informed practice training. Um, I know we provided at Stramillis with our students, um, albeit it has been challenging and we, we can do an awful lot more. Um, but it does, I think, remind us that the priority has to be on the pastoral care needs of the children first and foremost. Um, if, if they feel safe and if they feel supported um, in a structured environment, and the structure is not just about routine, it's about children feeling safe as well as being safe and supported in the school environment, then the learning um, should start to emerge. Um, I, I would be very cautious also about using terminology like catch up in terms of learning because we don't want children to feel that they're behind in any way at all. They're already going to be coming back. Some children will be very nervous about going back to school and um, they, they won't understand the changes again depending on the age. So I think it's about giving children time allow them to settle in, allow them to reconnect, build those relationships again, feel safe and supported and then I think the learning will come. So uh, I would like to see that actually continuing. I would hate to see that this um, very sort of pastoral approach that seems to be going about, certainly around social media and speaking to colleagues, um, where they, they feel that should be a priority in September. But I would be cautious that if in a few years time that would slip back. I would hope not. I, I'd like to see that continue to be the emphasis in all schools at all times anyway. Siobhan, do you want to come in on that question? What should be the priority for schools as children return in September? Um, Brona's response was fantastic. It really covered all the bases. Those compassionate connections are crucial. Forming, reforming relationships are absolutely essential. Before we even talk about learning or trying to learn, and having said that, the structure is crucial. So the structure of classes and lessons and opportunities to play. Um, and it, it needs to be given time. So there will be weeks of this that will happen before there will be, there should be any attention really paid to where the child 
changes in relation to the, the school curriculum. Um, and I think we need to really change our expectations here. Um, this is not, as, as Bruno said, it's not about catching up. It's about trying to understand what has been happening during lockdown and where each child is at um, and thinking about those children who have additional support needs and where can we get support um, to help to help them with that. Um, so the learning, unfortunately, must take a back seat for, for quite a, a significant period of time. And even as we go through the pandemic, as Tony pointed out, there's going to be um, different things that will happen and different needs. We're, we're looking at a few years at the very least here of, of significant change. So our expectations around education and, and what education's doing for children and the role of our educators and teachers, all of that, I'm afraid, is actually shifting. Um, but I think this is going to be a positive thing if we can try and harness this. Um, we've seen a pandemic that has really shown us who are the key workers in our society and who we value and teachers are a massive part of that. So um, that gratitude that we have for teachers and the work that they've been doing um, in, in connecting with children all through lockdown, that needs to be um, that needs to be rewarded and we need to be able to express our gratitude in a more meaningful way um, as well for, for the work that teachers do. But I, I think everything has changed right now. So it's a real opportunity to think about what is the purpose of education and what, what are we doing when we're sending um, our children to school? Because, I mean, for me as a parent, um, trying to do a bit of work with my child and working at the same time, it certainly made me realise that, that, that that's actually not possible um, and really value much more the people who I send my children to on a daily basis to, to care for and nurture. You said um, you talked there, Siobhan, about the the and, and Brona as well about the time to settle back into school and to re-establish the relationships, time for play, time for children to get to know their teachers again, or indeed new teachers. Um, one immediate question that springs to mind then is the uh, debate about the transfer tests that are coming up in November. Um, they've been put back by a couple of weeks or maybe one week. Uh, by a very short period, but you've got children coming into year seven, then some of them facing that test. I wonder if anybody has any views on that that they'd like to share. Well, maybe I'll come come in on this one. I mean, the <clears throat> I think the the point to be made about trying to focus on the human side of education is really really important. Uh, the actual priorities in terms of the way things are rolling out at the moment seems to be focused more on on exams and focused on exam year groups and the eleven plus year group is a particular group in, in mind. There's some summer school support is going to be put in place, some software support is going to be provided for schools, but that's targeted on P6 kids. And if schools want to use that support for any other pupils in the school, then they have to pay for it themselves. So the, the system appears to be trying to prioritise some of these exams. And I can sort of understand why that's the case. But actually, uh, when we think about the broader social and pastoral impact of all of this, uh, focusing kids on high-stakes exams just seems to be so far off the mark for, from my point of view that I really can't understand that, that priority. There's a job of work to be done to get kids back and to restore their sense of self and sense of confidence and uh, uh, dropping some kids right back into a sort of a, a high stakes, a sort of high profile exam situation is not, I don't think, going to particularly uh, help uh, in that, that circumstance. There are, we know there are 11 schools uh, that ordinarily would use um, 
uh, academic criteria as part of their admissions uh, process have said they're not going to do it next year. I think it's unfortunate that Moore didn't join them. Uh, there's a whole separate argument about whether we keep academic selection into the future or not, but for this one year it seems to me uh, we need uh, we, we should have had a, a, a pass on it, but that's obviously not going to happen for most uh, for most young people. So I think that's, that's unfortunate, but it does speak to a, a bigger thing about our school system that I think we do need to call into question as a result of all, all this experience and that is the apparent fixation we have with increasingly high levels of qualifications as if that's the only or the most important part of education uh, and there needs to be a much bigger conversation about the broader purpose of education and the broader uh, sort of uh, uh, repertoire of things if you like that we want young people to take out of their time in school. Uh, all uh, evidence from other emergency situations suggests that um, the most enduring impact of a crisis like this is on uh, educational outcomes uh, and the uh, the opportunities that provides for young people into the future. And I think we we should be learning from that experience and thinking in the medium to longer term to try and help every cohort of young people who are leaving any part of the education system uh, 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 at this time to help them out uh, in situations whenever um, they're they're trying to make their way in life because we know from past experience that people who graduate from whatever level uh, are the the uh, suffer the most deleterious consequences and let's let's remember too there's been huge amounts of money uh, devoted to saving businesses to saving jobs and i think that's entirely appropriate uh, entirely appropriate that that was done we should take exactly the same attitude to education whatever needs to be done whatever it costs to do it that's what we should we should be doing um uh, because the, this 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 crisis is a wake-up call to try and rethink where uh, what where, where education system is going as a whole, and we should we sh- we should uh, we should be aware of that. We should do something in that situation. So, moving on to think about what uh, resources are in place to help children when they return to school. So, in England, there's been a one billion pound program announced to support children during the summer and as they come back. In Northern Ireland, we've got some summer schools and some online resources, but it doesn't feel like a, a comprehensive approach. Um, does the Northern Ireland executive need to do more? Do you think, Siobhan, do you want to start start with you on that? Oh, well, yesterday I actually had a meeting with the Education Authority's um, Youth Service and they are doing a lot in the background. I think we're really bad in Northern Ireland at actually communicating what's happening to the public for some reason. We we constantly have this narrative that everything's worse here and that we're doing a poor job. Um, and what, what actually the difficulty seems to be is that there's so many resources out there that, uh, that working out which are the best quality and which we would recommend because we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. There, there's lots of countries have done this a little bit earlier than us so it's a matter of really deciding what what we need and what we would recommend and there's such a huge variation um, in the, the, the needs that young people will have and the, the difficult situations that teachers will be in so that um, the idea of just one package that that's not going to work either there needs to be um, a whole uh, set of packages that, that, that address emo- emotional mental health needs uh, difficulties around behavior and then educational stuff as well so so this is a, a mammoth task and i think the the youth 
the service are actually doing a really good job but um again that that hasn't yet been communicated to the public so i think there's a little bit of work around that you know looking at the website there's some frequently asked questions and a lot of it is based on the uncertainty that we have about the the spread of the virus but i think we need to communicate in a better way what's actually out there and what's happening so that we can have confidence and as tony said earlier that trust that the authorities are doing the best for our kids because I actually haven't spoken to them i do believe that that they are um and that that it will be okay and the examples in other countries and particularly england um has shown us that it's actually less chaotic than we think teachers by their very nature are very flexible and they can manage really highly stressful situations um with young people in a way that we probably can't imagine so um i i think it is going to be okay but the communication is the difficulty right now Tony, have you any thoughts on that in terms of the resources that have been put in place? Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the things that I know talking to a lot of uh, teachers in schools and school principals, they're very critical of a message that keeps coming from the department that there's no extra money in the department budget to provide supply teachers, to provide uh, cover of all kinds and and other sorts of support that, that's needed. Uh, and, and in this particular instance, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the Department of Education because there isn't any additional money in their budget because this shouldn't be a Department of Education priority. This should be an executive priority. The executive needs to think of this strategically. Um, and it goes back to the point that uh, uh, I think I've already made, that we know from past experience that one of the most enduring consequences of crises like this is the impact on education and the, the futures of generations of young people. And so we need to see it in those sorts of terms. And that's why we need to take a whatever, whatever it takes, whatever it costs approach. That's what was done at the start with furloughing jobs, providing support to business. We need to do the same for education because the long-term consequences of this could be quite, could be quite Quite huge, and so, but it needs to be seen as a strategic priority for for Northern Ireland. Uh, it can't be left to one minister and one department to try and find resources from whatever budget they currently have. They need support from a whole range of different places to try and make all this this happen. Um, and there needs to be. We need to learn from other people's experiences. The point that's been made, and we need to uh, be uh, flexible uh, and ensure that we're trying to identify the range of different consequences and what needs to be done to try and address address them. But this shouldn't be constrained by resources it's much much too important than, uh, than that so we've thought about the the uh, return of children and young people to schools in september and 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 talked a bit about the policy response to that one final question i'd really like to ask you which looks a bit further ahead and um some of you have already started to to hint at this so lots of people have described covid as a disruptive event you know, obviously that's had lots of very difficult and negative consequences for many people across lots of sectors. But sometimes the disruption also gives us an opportunity to reevaluate and rethink how we do things. So in the light of that, what have we learnt from this period of, of school closures that might make us reconsider how we approach education in schools, looking more to the long term? Brona, do you want to start off on that? Um. Yeah, thanks, Anne. I think it's um, it's already been uh, referred to, but I think the communication is a massive one. Siobhan mentioned it, and I couldn't agree more. I think the it has really um, it has reminded us about the importance of multi agency collaboration, and I think there is a greater need for perhaps some interprofessional education. I know I would bring some of our teaching students and our early childhood study students with the social work students at Queen's and we bring them together um, once a year so that they can learn from each other 
about each other together um, and it's to try and break down those barriers because we know that within the realms of education they, they can't work on their own without losing their professionalism as a teacher they still need to be able to work with health professionals with social care professionals and so on um, in order to meet the holistic needs of children so I think this has really brought to the fore the need for multi-agency collaboration to be improved uh, we have made a lot of improvements in recent years but I still think there, there's room to move forward um, I think making better use of outdoor space and, and community resources um, Tony mentioned earlier about the spaces within schools but also sharing of those resources within the communities community resilience is absolutely crucial to help children when they return to school um, so I think if we look at the outdoor learning, outdoor space, community resources, building resilience, multi-agency collaboration, um, you could probably mention an awful lot on this one, but those would be my priorities um, for moving forward and what we can learn from and what has happened. Great. Siobhan, just turning to you, what do you think this has made us reconsider about how we approach education in schools? Well, I think, um, as I said earlier, the, the value that we place on teachers and the relationships that our teachers have with our children um, can't be underestimated. And we're, we're really seeing the benefit of, of those relationships now and the importance of those relationships to young people's mental health. So um, I, I think that needs to be acknowledged as part of a teacher's role, perhaps. And we need to really have a conversation about how we're training teachers and whether we're preparing them for that and what our expectations are around those, those issues. Um, I also think in terms of, of what we're learning about online education and the the idea, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was laughed at when he suggested free broadband for all. Actually, now we realise that that would be a great thing. So um, the importance of, of broadband, of Wi-Fi, of um, up-to-date equipment and how that digital divide can really exacerbate existing inequalities. So th those are two points that, that, that I would highlight, really. Um, but that, that idea of education, the role of educators, in young people's mental health and resilience. I think that's a key one for me. Great. And Tony, do you want to finish off by telling us what you may, what you think this has made us reconsider about education? Yeah, I mean, if you think back to the 1918 Spanish flu in America, it transformed uh, American public schools. Uh, after the, uh, the Spanish flu, uh, school nurses were established as firm posts within US public schools. Uh, school lunches were provided as a matter of course. They hadn't been before. And the, the value of outdoor education and exercise became part of it. They, tr they expanded what education was about because of the experience. We should do exactly the same thing here. Siobhan has made the point about uh, uh, online systems. It, uh, Household access to the web should be as ubiquitous as, as access to water and electricity. It's something that just has to be there. Uh, and we can, one of the things we can learn from uh, this period of using um, remote learning is that it provides an opportunity for education to be much more flexible and much more personalised. Uh, and I think that would <clears throat> that's that's a good thing. And that's all about taking a much more expansive view of what education is uh, is all about. We've we've talked about the importance of the broader sort of human dimensions of education, the socio emotional aspects that I think is going to be really important in, into the future uh, and it links into a broader agenda about trying to create an education system which is much more consciously inclusive um, 
qualifications are not the sole priority of education in Northern Ireland. It would be uh, unfair to schools and to teachers to say that. But uh, qualifications seems to be, you get the the clear impression, it's the most important priority of the system. And we we need to move beyond that to recognise that uh, education is about many more things. Uh, We have to build that more expansive notion of education into the educational experience we want each of our young people to take out of their time at school. and see the limitations of that very narrow view of education which have been highlighted and the, the inequalities that have been exacerbated by the, the crisis we're still still going through. <clears throat> and that's what I hope is going to be the, the biggest long-term consequence. We have a, a, real, a real deep discussion about what education is for and we take a more expansive view of what education can be uh, for every young person into the future. Great, great. Thank you. Um- I'm going to draw to a close now. We've, we've covered a lot of ground in the last 40 minutes. It's been great to talk to you and get your different perspectives. I think the things that are coming out to me to try to summarise a little bit at least is um, a really clear emphasis on children and young people's well-being, not just on learning outcomes, and that as children come back to school in September, there's a need for time to settle in, to re-establish relationships to play, to get to know their, their peers again. Um, and, and teachers need to be equipped and helped to support young people through that process and not to be, I suppose, rushing into a focus more on academic side of the academic side of learning. Um, second thing I think coming across to me is this point about the, 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 the longer term impact of COVID may actually be the most lasting impact may be in education and um, that may be the most enduring legacy from COVID. We've seen that in the past as Tony was telling us about the Spanish the Spanish flu and we need to look at how as a, as a government I suppose as a society we're investing in education to help those cohorts have, who have been deeply affected by this crisis. We've as um, as we've said, there's been serious amounts of government investment, government money invested in the furlough scheme, for example, to support people in 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 work and staying in employment. Uh, have we got a similar level of commitment to helping young children and young people who have suffered in their in their education during this period? And I think another thing that came across really clearly is is the challenge to 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 learn. From this period, we've we've seen particularly the importance of access to online learning and how that should be that's re- that's needed to be universal for everyone during this time. And so we need to we need to continue to focus on that, um, and also the need for a a personal and a flexible approach in 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 how we are educating our children and young people with with less of a focus on formal qualifications and thinking about education in a much broader way. So that's a very short summary of a really deep, um, wide discussion that we've had. So can I say thank you to our panel for sharing their insights and experience with us? It was certainly really interesting and stimulating. So thank you to Professor Tony Gallagher, Professor Siobhan O'Neill and Dr. Brona McKee. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please do look out for the previous podcasts in this series from Queen's Ulster University in Pivotal on the economic impact of COVID in Northern Ireland and on leadership during the COVID crisis. Thanks for listening today.